Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. On February 14, 2018, a gunman opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. It's the deadliest high school shooting in United States history. In her latest film, Us Kids, Kim Snyder, its director-producer, follows Samantha Fuentes, a survivor of the shooting, and other student activists who go on to take a stand against gun violence in the March for Our Lives movement, the largest youth protest in American history. The film opens today in theaters and on PVOD, that's Premium Viewing on Demand, and brings Kim Snyder and Sam Fuentes to our show now. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Kim, Us Kids is not your first documentary about gun violence in schools. Your short film about the uh, 2112 shooting at the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School won a Peabody Award. When you heard about what happened at Parkland, did you think, uh-oh, here we go again? Oh, geez. Um, so Kim is not on the call. It's just me, oh. Sam. Okay, Sam. Uh, I guess that's what uh, slowed us down. Um, so could, uh, there have been a number of recent shootings, so um, have you been thinking about whether things have changed much? Absolutely. I mean, it's hard not to feel a bit resentful and even disappointed at times when gun violence is just so normalized and so integrated within our society. It makes you feel like our system tends to not, it's just very neg neg negligent towards people, but I think right now, especially with the pandemic and the 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 revival, may I say, of Black Lives Matter and the, the open discussion about you know racial injustice and opening this conversation of inclusivity with uh, gun violence, we're we're starting to see a major cultural shift in how we discuss gun violence because I feel we've lived in an uh, in, in an era for so long where violence is so glorified and so normalized and so polarized, right? Um, There's still resistance in Congress to making, uh, coming up with any federal laws. Absolutely. I think the federal aspect is going to be the most difficult uh, beast to tackle, right? Um, and that's why I definitely recommend the efforts of, you know, you know, grassroots and localized efforts. This is, you know, essentially how we can make the biggest impact. I think resources especially the uh, communities that are most specifically affected by gun violence is one of the first ways that we can start uh, picking up the pieces, um, if I may say, um, because oftentimes we forget just the aftermath and just the ripple of gun violence and how it's often a cycle. And if we can provide just you know localized care and resources for communities, that's the best effort we can uh, do. Uh, and hopefully this will create um, a, a ripple effect in its own and the federal government will start taking things like this more seriously. But as, as of right now, as American people, I think that's the best we can do and continue protesting, continue you know, fundraising and, and high, giving um, light to organizations that are doing on the ground work every single day uh, for communities most affected by gun violence. So I think- Where were you when, where were you when the shooting started? Pardon? Where were you when the shooting started? Oh, I was um, in my Holocaust studies class uh, <laughs> on the first and, floor of the 1200 building, which where the shooting occurred. And you were hospitalized? Yes. Yeah. Um, for what for? 
Um, I uh, sustained a gunshot wound just above my left knee and multiple uh, shrapnel uh, wounds all over my legs, my arm, and my face. Um, I also just had a lot of like um, just bruising and all that kinds of stuff that needed to be cleaned up. So I was pretty, <laughs> was pretty messed up after the whole thing. So I needed to stay in the hospital for a few days. And when you were recovering in the hospital, um, Rick Scott, who was then governor of Florida, he's now a senator, came to visit you and he asked you if there was anything that you needed or wanted. And what did you tell him? <laughs> I told him that I wanted to speak to the president. <laughs> well, how did he respond to that? <laughs> I suppose in the most appropriate way that he could. Um, he called the shooter a sick puppy, and which is very um, invasive in his questions, and didn't. And he uh, was very adamant about seeing me, which never happened. Uh, <laughs> so just you know, a series of like empty promises. But I told him that I was going to make a difference. You know that I was going to that I was going to do the best that I could. Which well, I well seven years. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish what you were saying. I told him I was going to try to create the most change possible. Um, and I was just saying that I suppose that really doesn't matter to a person like him. Well, seven years before the shooting, he signed the Firearm, Firearm Owners Privacy Act. And in 2017, he signed an expanded version of Florida's Stand Your Ground law. He's also received an A-plus rating from the NRA. So do you think that he was actually prompted to do anything in response to what you were telling him? I suppose he was suggested against it. Uh, as many people's hands in his, in his pockets, I suppose. And um, I think just for publicity, publicity's sake, he came to express his condolences. But I'm not entirely sure if it was authentic or genuine, especially if we're discussing uh, his political history, uh, his uh, behaviors and his actions don't necessarily reflect somebody who is necessarily interested uh, nor qualified to deal with anything that involves gun violence control or gun violence prevention. Uh, so that's what I'll say about that. <laughs> well, one, of, one of the powerful moments of the film is when you gave a speech on the March for Our Lives demonstration. What did you say in that speech? Uh, I suppose what every single person was there saying, which was, you know, uh, enough is enough. And that, you know, we live in a country where the human life is just losing its value. And we don't prioritize the safety of people over guns. And this, these are just, you know, basic rights of, you know, the of, of being an American citizen that we're allowed to live and safe. Uh, in a country. Um, and I was just making my demands that, you know, we, I shouldn't have to ask permission for my friends not to die. Like, you know, basic, just basic rights, I suppose, is what I was asking for, you know? We, uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're talking about a film called Us Kids, 
which opens in theaters and on PVOD uh, today uh, and is directed by Kim Snyder. And uh, uh, one of the, the key figures in it is uh, the person we've been speaking to, Sam Fuentes. Well, Kim Snyder now joins us. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I started off the show, I thought you were there, pointing out that this isn't your first documentary about gun violence in schools. You did a short film about the uh, 2012 shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, which won a Peabody Award. And I was wondering, when you heard about what happened in Parkland, did you think, uh-oh, here we go again? Um, no, it, it actually wasn't a short film. It was a, um, a, a long, a long, a long three-year film. But in any case, I didn't intend to be making um, this film and had moved on and there were other shootings. And then I happenstantially was developing another project in Florida when uh, Sam's shooting occurred. And um, I was in the state capitol and all of her, a lot of her classmates arrived on the steps of that capital demanding change. And I felt that this was a different moment. Uh, and it was, uh, I felt like I had to follow this story because I had come out of the Newtown story mm. with a, a, an untold story, which was all of those kids that had survived that and being privy to the PTSD that ensued and thinking about that in the larger context of the nation and how many kids across the country have been traumatized by gun violence in all kinds of communities. So when this Sam, happened, I felt this was an opportunity to tell that story. Sam, uh, had you and your peers ever worried about the possibility of gun violence before this happened? Do you think that students these days are always aware of the possibility that there'll be some gun violence in their school? Even a school is, uh, uh, I guess, upscale as the one you attended. Yeah, I think it's something that all students are aware of, especially with just the trend and the frequency in which school shootings occur. But I think that we all have a certain amount of complacency that we set aside and then we say to ourselves, you know, this is never going to happen to us. You know, this would never happen in a town like this. This would never happen to a person like me. You know, mm -hmm. and that's precisely the issue is that you have all of these unassuming children um, who have the absolute right to live their lives within, you know, their means and within safety. And then it's just questioned. And in an instant, a human life is just removed off the face of the earth, right? And so I think this was something we were aware of, but mm -hmm. we never really assumed it would happen to us. Um, Not me, yes. Uh, Kim, Emma Gonzalez is one of the key organizers of the March for Our Lives protests, and her We Call BS speech comes early in the film. What were the main points of that speech, and what can you tell us about Emma? Um, well, one thing I could tell you is that, that Emma, who appears in the film, recently changed her name to X, so I will uh, call to her X? At, to uh -huh. X Gonzalez, um, so in, in case it's confusing for, for folks. Um, but is she I doing think, that to protect herself? Uh, uh, she could speak to that, but... Um, uh, the reason I ask, I'm sorry, let me interrupt for a moment. Uh, she is a co-founder with David Hogg of, uh, uh, and, one, and their leaders of the March for Our Lives movement. Um, and uh, David Hogg uh, has had uh, death... He's talked about death threats. Um, we know about the uh, notorious Marjorie Taylor Greene harassment of David. Um, has uh, X also experienced those kinds of things? I think um, they all have in one degree, not 
know, David more than anybody probably, but I think it's a combination of things in, in terms of X, including gender. Um, but uh, to, to answer your question, that early speech, as you can see, we start out the film where Sam tells me that she remembers seeing that speech in her hospital bed and thinking that this classmate, um, you know, wow, she's really on fire. And I think the world felt that. Um, she had nothing, they had nothing to lose and just spoke their mind and, and had been learning about this in a government class with the NRA. And it just was so uh, simple and angry and true. And um, so that speech I feel like was like the, the spark, you know, that was the spark of the movement. Um, those moments when she, along with these busloads of kids that came up to Tallahassee and, and then of course, 47, in 47 days, they pulled off the largest youth protest in American history since the Vietnam era. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just feel privileged to have watched um, them pull this off. Um, and it, you know, the, one of the things I tell people was it, it, it was all them. Uh, nobody ever wrote speeches. Uh, this was just completely uh, on buses, doing homework, learning about gun laws, writing speeches, being exhausted, all the sacrifices you see in the film that um, I came to see them as really the same kind of young patriots that have pulled off movements since the beginning of our history. And your film covers the, the road to change bus tour that summer. Where did it take you? Oh my goodness, it was three legs. It started in Chicago. It went across the the the, the prairies through places like Bismarck. Um, it went uh, across the Southwest where you see us go through Texas and um, conf you know being confronted by AR-15 wielding um, mm. hardcore pro-gun guys. And finally through the South ending up in Newtown. Um, uh, and, and there were just, you know, we were in, uh, yeah, just all kinds of places in the country in a very seminal summer um, of, of our the history of our nation. So it was, it was, it was incredible to how, to be part of that. How often was the tour targeted by protesters? All the time, all the time. What was fascinating is that there was a, a, a kind of a, of a drill of having a town hall which in, in smaller places um, like Bismarck, North Dakota is coming to mind, they would be really, there would be this whole group of um, people who were very uh, vocal about wanting sensible gun laws inside. And then there would be these protesters often outside. Um, mm. It was a microcosm of the rest of the country in, in a sense. Um, but they were also being followed by this um, big kind of uh, I don't know, a truck like the Utah gun exchange. So they had security and um, there were times where it was scary. They got hmm. uh, social media with death threats and persevered. There's a scene in the film where David Hogg is speaking with counter protesters who are wearing MAGA hats and waving flags promoting gun ownership. Uh, and it ends interestingly with the counter protesters saying that David isn't the the, the the way they see him portrayed on TV. <laughs> yes, I think I think um, it's it's really emblematic of everything we know right now about disinformation and the 
disconnection of people meeting face to face and truly thinking that these young people were pawns, that they were crisis actors, that, you know, it's, it's just very married to conspiracy theory and sort of dehumanizing them into not understanding these are truly kids who are reacting to seeing their friends murdered and wanting to do something to correct that. Is that it was that simple. And yet um, there was all of this other stuff loaded around it um, that I think enabled adults to sometimes rationalize that it was okay to go after uh, high schoolers in, in, in really nasty ways. Sam, didn't the uh, Parkland students form a network with student groups against gun violence around the country and the world? How, that's complicated. How did uh, you make that happen? Well, I guess uh, definitely wasn't just me. So mm-hmm. there's that. And additionally, it's just the, the nature and the magic of social media and I guess also the power of media, right? Um, we had international tension. We had these people who felt really strongly about their cause and we had the support of um, young people all throughout America. And also additionally, we also were privileged enough to have all of these other organizations who were doing um, you know, the gun violence prevention work far be- before us, you know, organizations like Moms Demand Action and um, the Sandy Hook Promise and you know, um, the Brady campaign or, you know, all of these great organizations, like it's just the power of networking and mm-hmm. using each other's resources and being open and using communication um, is basically how we did it. it. Was It was definitely not just a, a, a one-man <laughs> stand. It was uh, the effort of tons of different students and organizations and organizers all throughout who spent tons of time mm-hmm. and energy uh, fundraising and organizing protests and walkouts and assembling um, petitions and uh, creating meaningful social media posts and arts artists creating uh, posters and and um, advertisements. So like all of these things uh, was this culmination of things. I think is a big reason why both the march on March twenty eighth, two thousand eighteen, and the uh, the road for change had such great success was not only did it have a strong base line of, of students, but all of the networking that they did with the local communities and the other organizations that are working so hard in this movement. So and, it's, and people, uh, people around the country brought different things to it. For example, there's Bria Smith. Uh, in Milwaukee, Alex King in Chicago. Um, did you get to talk to Bria? Yeah, <laughs> Bria is actually a good friend of mine. She was here a couple weekends ago at my apartment. <laughs> so, Her work yeah. focuses on young people of color and and gun violence. Um, and, and when the Parkland students met her, they asked her to join the tour. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't really there for that exchange, but from my understanding, uh, people like Bria and Alex, when they had visited their communities, were really compelling and just very, um, you know activated members of the community that are um, meaningful, not just for the movement, but in the representation within the movement, right? Um, I often say this, which is the story of Parkland, right, is not the story of American gun violence, right? So for an accurate movement 
an efficient movement has to include inclusivity. It has to include these members because especially people of color, they're so affected by gun violence, uh, disproportionately so compared to things like mass shootings, which only really uh, uh, are less than 0.6% of the kinds of gun violence that happen in this country. So it's essential. Um, if we're going to have an honest and authentic conversation, that starts with the representation. So. Bria packed a bag for a two-day trip and had to make that last for two months on the road because because the relationship of race and gun violence has become such an important part of the movement. Absolutely, um, it's it's not just it's it's such an important aspect of the conversation, and I feel like um, in the beginning, you know. Um, it, it was hard to recognize that, um, especially coming from the, the privilege of Parkland, right, I suppose. But when you really look at the statistics and you look at, you know, those who are most affected by gun violence, people of color, um, and that's why race is such a big part of co this conversation, especially um, now with the what I like to call the revival of Black Lives Matter, um, uh, with the conversations of police brutality and uh, racially charged hate crimes and all of these things are a part of that uh, umbrella that is gun violence, you know? Uh, and I think that is essential part of the conversation. And if it's not a part of the conversation, we're doing a disservice to ourselves. Kim, uh, I mentioned another person in your film, Alex King, a member of the Peace Warriors Foundation. What's their goal? Um, there, a lot of uh, violence prevention, violence interrupters, doing a lot of things within his community and own, his own backyard. And that's something that I find a lot of hope in to just piggyback on what Sam was saying is that uh, my feeling is a lot of the youth movement in, in a very smart way is really looking hyper local because they've become so disillusioned with waiting for this holy grail of the federal you know, gun reform, which we all hope can happen under the Biden administration. Um, but, you know, looking at the state level, getting youth to, to, to really engage in voting down ballot, in looking at their towns and their states and trying to get stuff done locally um, is very encouraging uh, because what else can you do while this, we wait for the Senate to try to pass bills that for 20 years, you know, 90% of Americans have basically agreed on, on, on passing. Um, so um, anyway, what Alex is doing, I've met so many people across the country like Alex and just am also really encouraged because activists like Sam and um, others in the film have come together to support them and make sure that the light is is, is shine on on those those black and brown communities and their efforts because they've been leading uh, for for years um, on the front lines of this and bearing as Sam said the, the disproportionate um, effect of gun violence. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
a little bit of music from uh, some of the uh, Parkland students. Uh, we're talking about a new film uh, called Us Kids. Uh, Kim Snyder's with us. She is the director and the producer of it. And it opens today in theaters and on PVOD, premium viewing on demand. Uh, and she is joined by one of the uh, students who was at Parkland and has become a major uh, activist uh, as a result of what happened, uh, Sam Fuentes. Uh, now, uh, uh, didn't the, uh, oh, what have we, what have you learned from the families of the victims, Kim? Uh, for example, uh, who's uh, Anika Dworet? Anika is the mother Annika. of, yeah, Anika is the mother of Nick, who was Sam's friend and murdered next to her in uh, in her Holocaust studies class. Um, and, um, you know, we've become close and, and Sam is close with, with them as well. Um, you know, it, it's that harkens back to the work I did in Newtown with families of loss there, where uh, what I observe is a lot of pay it forward between survivor communities. Um, there's very few people I've met who've been through this, survived this, lost family members, uh, survived like Sam, who don't come out of it feeling like they want to do everything they can to prevent this from happening again and join up with others. So there have been so many off-camera things. There was um, a time very early on where uh, we didn't use it in the film. The, the, the Bardens, who lost their son Daniel and Sandy Hook, ended up, um, uh, I introduced them not long after the Parkland shooting to the Dwarits, and they were able to give some comfort um, to them. Uh, but it's just a, a saddeningly growing club that, you know, is the most horrific club to be part of. And, and Sam can speak more to that, but um, those numbers just grow every single time you know, every day with the numbers that we know are happening with shootings around the country and have reached um, new levels in 21. Along the, those lines, Sam, the topic of survivor guilt, guilt is brought up in the film. Can you talk about that feeling and how you and your peers have managed it? Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Therapy, and, that helps. And definitely just like, as Kim was describing, you know, talking to one another within your, within kind of your community who's been affected by that event is really helpful so that, you know, the struggle doesn't just feel so um, and daunting on its own, right? Mm. And additionally, you know, survivor's guilt is interesting because, you know, I, op my optimist mind, the part of me that wants to be on the bright side of things understands that those that were unfortunately lost that day would probably want me to live my life to the fullest and do something that was meaningful and purposeful in life and that I shouldn't be so, you know, hard on myself all the time for coming out of this the way that I did. But you say you didn't want pity. But exactly, you know, um, and that's the thing is I think a way to work through avoiding the pity is just working you know, three times as hard as everybody else does, um, especially in this work of gun violence prevention. And, you know, because if I am doing something that takes strength, then I feel strong, right? So a big part of, you know, managing my survivor's guilt is definitely 
activism and, you know, cause this is a way to memorialize those that I've lost. This is a way to memorialize all those who've been affected by gun violence and have lost people they love. So uh, that's one way that I, I manage my survivor's guilt. Cause that's, I think that's what they would have wanted for me. And it's brought you closer to some of the, uh, the other people who uh, have been hurt by this whole thing. Didn't you become uh, develop a special relationship with the younger brother of your special friend, uh, the uh, who was killed in the in the shooting. Yeah, um, his uh, Nick Dward's brother. His name is Alex. Uh, he's actually uh, now graduating from high school, from my understanding. Um, and yeah, it, it's brought me closer, not just to Alex, but the entire family. And you know, we both. I feel when we're together and we spend time together, it's, it's really, um, I, it's, it's fun more than anything else, but it's soothing. It's cause like, you know, there's somebody there who understands the pain, um, who under that you don't have to talk about it with to be understood. You know, not everything is a discussion or a deep analysis of our, our psyches and our consciousness. No, it's, it's just two young people hanging out. Um, and, that's it. And I think that's, I think that's the one thing about people that you share a trauma with that you're bonded with in that way. There is so much thing, so many things that are unspoken that don't need to be because it's understood. Whereas I think one of the things that I struggle with in my personal life is having to explain all of my, mm. <laughs> my skeleton, my closet. So it's, it's a breath of fresh air, not having to comb through all of that all the time. Suddenly, the media uh, is uh, interested in you. And Kim, uh, uh, when news outlets were looking for interviews, uh, student activist Cameron Kasky said they were being passed around like an STD, uh, like SC, yeah, STD at uh, Florida State University uh, for interviews. He spoke with uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio at a CNN town hall and um, that thing went off script. What happened? Well, that was just, uh, I think, uh, a really uh, a moment where the the kids, I'll call them the kids, kind of realized that they had the power uh, to go beyond even traditional media. And one of the things that I think, as an as an older person uh, on the line here with Sam. Uh, is is watching the power of social media and the confidence and command that they were able, you know, how they were able to harness it. I mean, how how else do you pull off the are you getting millions of people on six continents to a activate in forty seven days? Uh, you know, it's just was astounding to watch that phenomenon. You know, we saw it, I think, with Arab Spring. It didn't. I, I thought of that often about what set off Arab Spring when that that young man in Tunisia that went viral uh, when he mm -hmm. self-immolated. And and I feel like Emma's speech, I always felt like that was that, you know, in some way. Um, so when Cameron went off script, it was another beat in that viral narrative of, oh my goodness, you know, these kids um, just are not going to play by rules in, in the best of ways. And honestly, it reminded me of my own rebellious t teenage years um, uh, in, 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 a, in a really good way. Um, so 
Yeah, I, I think that was that was what that was about. And it was, you know, calling them out and saying what a lot of people think, which is, you know, are you or are you not bought? And, um, you know, can you tell us, look us kids in the face and 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 say something honest? Cameron talked about the power of the vote uh, and the shooting in Parkland made him and others realize the importance of the vote. <laughs> right now, there's been uh, there's an attempt uh, at some voter suppression in Florida. Uh, I don't know whether that will have an impact on uh, young people like Cameron and Sam and the others at Parkland. But um, uh, do you think this, Sam, did this motivate you to uh, consider uh, getting more involved in politics? No, I'm never getting involved in politics. <laughs> you are going to vote, I hope. No, it's, it's just because I understand that um, my reach only goes so far. Uh, and I also don't want to be what's the word under all that pressure and become convoluted by you know money and power dynamics and things that i morally i just don't stand for and i think when you become politically engaged i know even people with the best intentions they become almost um just as responsible uh, for people's actions as they are i suppose and so no I will never be involved in politics. And interesting that you bring that up because I just don't believe that this issue at hand, even though people will politicize it, um, is a political issue, right? Gun violence is a is a public health crisis. That is something that, you know, it has to be dealt with as such because this is affecting the the livelihood and the safeties of people. So the fact that we even politicize um, guns just shows you how how corrupted I suppose the American system is and how many people's hands are in other people's pockets, especially when it comes in regards to the NRA. Um, and I just don't want to be, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess, I don't know, just, I don't want to be involved with that. I just- So you don't want to fight for fair gun control legislation? I absolutely can and will fight for fair and sensible gun laws, but I don't think that I necessarily have to become a politician to do that. Mm. Um, and I, like I said, I couldn't deal with the pressure. Um, we we see how good I do on stage <laughs> if you've seen me at the march. So you do okay, Kim. You said that one of the biggest challenges of the film was to maintain balance uh, the the movement's rise and the lasting trauma of gun violence on America's youth. Um, did you have to worry about uh, the objections of uh, gun owners who might have seen the film as, as uh, a piece of propaganda? Well, we'll see. The film's releasing today, so we'll we'll learn more. You know, in this year of COVID, we've certainly uh, done a good a virtual film festival run. Um, but you know, I hope that what Sam just said—that I agree with her—it's it's about reframing the narrative as a public health epidemic. And um, really, the film, I think, I really want people to take away this terrain of the trauma of our of our youth and everybody uh, around this issue and so many issues. And I was thinking as you were speaking, Sam, about how much more relevant the film feels post COVID, mm -hmm. because I think in some ways, the um, the world and certainly here in this country, experienced a, a kind of um, mass post, we're all living in some kind of post-trauma 
from COVID. And I think for a lot of my friends, you know, who've been through the gun violence issue of thinking you think this could never happen to you and you wake up and you're living in this surreal alternate world, people have come a little closer to understanding trauma and um, what that what that feels like and to have things taken away from you that you took for granted. Um, you know, I hope that isn't too tangential, but I think that um, the, the, the general terrain of um, trauma and how many young people have suffer from anxiety and depression uh, because of that is what I tried to do with the film to, to really make people feel that it, this isn't a political uh, issue film or story per se in the country. It's really the built on the back of, of, of trauma. And in the case of, of youth like Sam, anger, frustration, and uh, a desire to have this change for younger generations. I'm speaking with the director producer of a uh, new film that opens today, Us Kids, uh, Kim Snyder, and one of the people featured in the film. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Sam, in the film, you say, pursue the things that make you happy and make you feel more fulfilled in your life because you don't know when your life is just going to come to a screeching halt. So did it, has it changed your plans for the future? this experience? Absolutely. I mean, except I think you don't want to go into politics. Definitely not. Um, that is a, a, I'm certain of that, but you know, I think in general, when we tend to underestimate our own abilities, right? Just in that everyday life, we tend not to value our time. We tend to be ungrateful of the things that many of us, you know, um, don't recognize those privileges and your life was one of those things. And they were, it was certainly for me when my life was tested, I was somebody who wanted to just kind of, you know, um, follow the nuclear family model and just, you know, go get a degree and find a husband and pop out a few babies and then <laughs> the babies have babies. And then I go die somewhere. And <laughs> I just found myself after that moment, um, not being satisfied with that because it really wasn't something that I knew was going to make me happy. Uh, I started to think deeply about the things that do. And one part of that was um, expression and writing and media and just being somebody who is an artist. And so now I'm in college and I want to study um, English and get more involved and, you know, write books potentially and write more music. And so I'm just kind of investing my, myself, um, investing in myself in a way that sure isn't necessarily monetarily the most um fulfilling but is more fulfilling in in what i consider success so that's basically what i'm doing i'm trying to reinvent myself i don't know what that means yet but you got plenty of time who cares you know <laughs> <laughs> no, i'm sure you'll work it out you're smart uh kim how did the persistent media coverage of the parkland shooting affect how you were able to cover the story as a documentary filmmaker especially in, in reaching people right after a tragedy like this. Uh, I, I imagine that they're, you know, they're confused about what they want to say and how they want to react. Well, I think I learned a lot in making the Newtown film, and I also gained some credibility in, uh, you know, in, um, in showing that I could make a film that um, 
was not exploitative and that I always felt that it was important to put the mental health and the, the well-being of people like Sam who were in the film, who, who were in the midst of trauma before the process of making the film. So there was a lot of off-camera conversations and a lot of joint conversations about uh, what, why the narrative was important, you know, why it was important to do this. And I think it's also the luxury of long form documentary mm-hmm. um, to, to you, you can't really cheat that. And you, you, when you invest in relationships and they're real um, those, those show on screen. So I think it was, it was all of those things. I remember the first time I sat down with um, um, Emma at the time and her her parents and it was like a four to five hour um a four to five hour session and somehow coincidentally um mark barden from newtown happened to call me who was in my newtown movie and had lost his son and i told him where i was and what i was doing and you know they said look if if uh if, if she still has relationships like that with these people then it it feels um like something we can trust in this process um with sam um from my perspective i mean not only was it her bravery and her just specialness um but i think there was you know you sometimes there's just chemistry where you feel um i feel comfortable with this person i somehow understand them and uh you don't have to work that hard at it um or it felt like that of course you needed to to get to know each other and and we did but um, I think that's hopefully what made Sam feel safer in, um, in, in you know, being more vulnerable on screen and, and getting the moments that we did get on camera. Did the story that you were telling change as you were working on the project? Sure, they always do. They always do. Um, I think I didn't know in the beginning that that's that um, a contingent of kids were going to take to the road. So that was like a, a logistic and then ended up being an editorial challenge. Um, on one hand, it was it was important to know that that I showed the birth of a movement that went outside of Parkland. And I didn't want to make the same movie as as Newtown, which was a more myopic look at the effect on one community. It was also really important to me that it, it not focus on, um, you know, a more um, upper class white community only and, and, and go out to, to black and brown communities that the kids themselves were trying to highlight. Um, so it was important that we go and film in Milwaukee with Bria Smith. Um, so all of those things were really taking the lead of what I was observing with the the intention of the movement as it was growing and trying to capture that so the the parts on the road um and and just um you know so many things happen i mean i'm i'm very proud um of our beginning and ending of the film of of sam and uh, emma at the time in a smash room and that was very organic um i remember talking to you sam and you know, what are you going to do at the first anniversary, which is emotionally, I knew from my Newtown experience is a, a very tough hurdle getting through that first anniversary. And she said, I just don't know. I want to get out of town, but I've had this feeling like I want to go to this smash room and just break things, and, you know? And so we decided we should film that, which um, has such a, 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 a metaphor and two layers of 
just teenage kids like blowing off steam on one hand and on the other hand there's so much more underneath it i think about um you know what about trauma and rage and what they've been through so we lots of pretty things. much we're pretty much out of time but i did want to bring up one other thing and we have to keep it really brief jacqueline corin the director of outreach from march for our lives uh says before the shooting that her father was a trump supporter and against her rhetoric. So do you think that this has changed people's minds? Definitely. I know in that case, yes. <laughs> and I think there were many like that who um, came to understand um, the, the whole narrative of, you know, there's nothing like going through something. So, um, and I've met tons of, you know, with my Newtown film and this film, tons of people along the way, when you tell a human story, you, you, you have numerous people come up and say, I'm an, an, I'm an NRA guy and you're going to reach people like me because you're not trying to force down their throat. You know, genuinely, the, the inception of this film was not, I want to make a movie about gun reform to convince people to think differently. That was I have to general. leave it there, unfortunately. Us Kids opens today in theaters and on PVOD, premium viewing on demand. And my great thanks to Kim Snyder and Sam Fuentes for talking with us today. It's been a great pleasure. Please and the film is very us. moving. Thank you. Please follow us at Us Kids Film. We're doing a lot of social action around the film. Okay. And Thank that brings you. us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing the interview you just heard, and to our live engineer Reggie Johnson and my executive producer Jesse Lent for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to our show and would like to hear more, you can access past segments streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Right now, that's 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this show. Uh, because WBAI is unique in that it's sponsored 100% by listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, or even if you've just discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews, I hope you'll step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 and play a part in keeping this historic station on the air by making a tax-deductible do donation. We really need your help now more than ever. Everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of our show, thank you. And I hope you'll join us again for Monday's show when two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Alan Taylor will discuss his illuminating new book, American Republic's a Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. Have a great weekend. See you then.